Hey, so I'm so excited. I want to share with you about one of our new sponsors, Starglow Media. They have this amazing show for all of you with younger kids called Mysteries About True Histories. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers and on adventures through time packed with puzzles and hidden equations, histories, and laughs. You all know Alana, our co-founder at Sproutable. She listened to the show with her seven-year-old and loved it. They would pause the show and try to figure out the math problems together, loved learning about different cultures and the histories around the world. The series explores themes like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and so much more. Math is geared Math is what they call it. Math is geared towards kids six and over, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. Episodes drop every Thursday, and they're about 15 minutes, perfect length for the car rides, mealtime, break time, bedtime. Each episode is stacked with so much laughter, and your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories math with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome back to the show. The Joyful Courage Podcast is a place for inspiration and education on the parenting journey. I am Casey O'Rourke. I am your host and I work really hard to keep it real, raw, and authentic as I share expert interviews with people I trust and admire and solo shows about my own experiences raising my two kids. As a positive discipline trainer and parent coach, I love, love, love talking parenting and digging into what it takes to feel as though we are being effective and helpful while also acknowledging that it is a messy, messy ride. We all make mistakes, people. This is not a how to be the perfect parent show. My context is how to work towards being as intentional and conscious as we can while navigating the very real challenges that come with the job of parenting. This summer, I'm revisiting some of my favorite shows that I think are particularly useful for those of us in the tween teen era because, wow, it sure is crazy to be on the other side of that, right? I think everyone will get so much out of these shows. And if your kiddo isn't in the teen years yet, know that I have nearly 200 shows to peruse and you will get useful nuggets from each and every one, even if it's a repeat listen. Today, I'm bringing back my conversation with Jessica Leahy. It's so good. She is all about autonomy, supportive parenting. Revisiting this show is so key for me right now as my family moves into the transition of a new town, new schools, new friend groups. I had so many ahas listening to it again. Crazy enough, this show was first released over four years ago. My gosh, so much has changed in my world. I know you will love this conversation. Check it out. All right, podcast listeners, I am so excited to introduce my guest for today's show. Her name is Jessica Leahy, and she is an educator, a writer, and a speaker, has been on the road for the last few months, has taught middle and high school for over a decade, and is a correspondent for The Atlantic and PBS Parents, commentator for Vermont Public Radio, and writes the bi-weekly parent-teacher conference advice column for the New York Times. 
her New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, was released in August by Harper Books and hit the New York Times bestseller list in September. I am mostly finished with that book, Jessica, and completely loving it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. And please call me Jess. Okay, I will. I Alrighty. would love to call you Jess. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit more about you that the bio didn't cover. Uh, yeah, so I taught for a long, long time. I taught high school. I taught middle school. I think the reason I identify as a middle school teacher is that's really where my heart lies. I never thought I would teach middle school. When I got asked to... Um, consider a position in middle school, I was just horrified. I was like, there is no way I could teach middle school kids. <laughs> but I fell so in love with them. Oh, um, God bless you. I just, they're just the best. And right now I'm actually teaching high school kids again. Um, I can't teach full time just because of my writing and speaking schedule. So I'm teaching, um, I actually teach high school kids in, uh, in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab uh, somewhat near my house. So it's a nice flexible position. And yet I still get to teach a group of kids that I just love. These kids are, um, they're pretty amazing. So it's good. It allows me to sort of keep one foot in the classroom and and continue to write. Yeah. What do you teach them? I teach writing and English. Really, I, I teach um, many of the kids come obviously dealing the recover their drug and alcohol recovery is sort of the, the first priority. But um, many of them come from school districts that will kind of give some assignments. Uh, some of them come there, you know, because they, and they've dropped out of school. So I just sort of meet them where they are and teach whatever. Sometimes it's etymology and I actually slip some Latin in there, but for the most part, it's writing. Yeah. I bet that that's a really powerful tool for them once they kind of embrace the idea that it can be a way for them to express themselves after the pain of yeah. I think most English writer, most English teachers or writing teachers will tell you that um, we get a lot of stuff in essays that students aren't willing to say out mm-hmm. loud, and uh, certainly that applies, uh, you know, in the rehab too. But I mean, over over the past seventeen years that I've been in and out of the classroom, um, you know, it writing tends to be a kind of therapy for kids or a, a safe place for kids, and so it's it's sort of a, a wonderful and natural extension that you know some of the some of their recovery work they'd be doing in their writing anyway. Um, but I get to read some pretty privileged stuff. So mm-hmm. I feel in the sense that I feel privileged to be able to read some of what they care to share with me and trust me enough to share with me. Yeah. So I've been reading your book, The Gift of Failure. Tell the listeners, tell us all, how did you find yourself writing about this topic? Uh, it, it's funny that you use the find yourself, the passive voice there, because it, it, it was surprising and it was fast. I mean, I had been writing about education for a while um, at the Core, Foundation, Core Knowledge Foundation blog and on my own blog, um, you know, to teachers and to educators and, you know, people who are sort of interested in education policy and the art of teaching. And um all of a sudden I wrote this piece that came out of a study that, that came out of Australia about um, what happens when kids are overparented. And I had, suddenly I had the quotes and the context to talk about um, these kids and what happens to them with their education. And I had been, something was feeling off. um, Something was clearly wrong in the schools where I've been teaching. Uh, The kids were increasingly afraid of messing up, afraid of 
increasingly anxious. All the stuff we've been hearing lately about, you know, for example, with the Palo Alto suicides article in The Atlantic and um, what Carol Dweck writes about in, in Mindset, that kids are so worried about not looking effortlessly smart and effortlessly perfect that they... Um, they were just afraid to make any mistakes. And the parents were really feeding that by saving them from the consequences of their mistakes and also, you know, wanting them also to look effortlessly perfect. So when I wrote this Atlantic piece, the first piece I wrote for the Atlantic, why parents need to let their children fail, it just kind of exploded. And and publishers came to me and and my wonderful, wonderful agent um, negotiated through a, an 11 publisher auction for the book. And, and, you know, three years later, here we are. It's It's been a wonderful ride. And, you know, I continue to write for the Atlantic. And um, that's been really wonderful to have that home base of the Mm -hmm. times in the Atlantic to continue to try things out. So just got off the road from three months on, um, on tour. And while that was amazing and wonderful, it was also tiring and I didn't get much of a chance to write. So I'm really excited to get back to work on my writing. Well, I always laugh when I tell people that um, I belong to this amazing Facebook group where there's all these incredible (laughs) parent educators and people post things like, this is my latest piece from the New York Times. And I get to post things like, this is my latest piece from the Monroe Monitor. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I just just wrote a note to a journalist in Tucson, Arizona today for a piece that she wrote about kids in foster care. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I... it's been this amazing well of new writing that I get to read from other people that I may not stumble across on my own. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and when you were talking about the kids and their anxiety and wanting to appear perfect and not making any mistakes, all I could think about was that whole identity of mothers, suppose, mm-hmm. you know, trying to look like, you know, yeah. the house is clean, I'm in great shape. There's a home-cooked meal in the oven. Everybody's homework. I wonder, I'm just imagining how that all feeds into itself as well. Well, you know, we kind of do it to ourselves. And and the problem is, you know, we don't mean to do it to ourselves, but we do. And I think it's the confluence of that sort of Instagram culture of, you know, all the mess is outside of the edges of the photograph and, Mm -hmm. and everything looks perfect and wonderful. And it's all, you know, we're all living this sort of real simple Martha Stewart living kind of existence, which clearly we're not, but that's what we, we tend to want to put out there. And it's, life is just messier than that. And, and that's why I think people, you know, the people who are willing to admit to how messy life can get, you know, that's why Glennon at Momastery is she's, she's willing to admit to how difficult life can be and how messy life can get. And, and I think that's kind of relief. And the last thing I wanted to do was create a book that required us to, you know, have to work harder at our parenting. If anything, I think this book gives us some permission to to let go of some things that aren't as important as they sort of might feel in the moment. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it hit home for me because I was raised in a family where you really, the the message that I received was you should always be striving to be the best one. Right. And, yeah. um, and for whatever reason, I was able to kind of, meh, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I'm good with my 3.0, you know, and it didn't necessarily derail me. Uh My parents also did a great job of, you know, I had to call and make appointments Mm -hmm. in high school. It was super annoying, something Mm -hmm. that I make my daughter do as well. Like, hey, why don't you call 
and make right. yourself a hair appointment. And, you know, I get the eye rolls and everything, but whatever. See, you get eye rolls. I get, could you just stop doing that gift to failure thing and just make the <laughs> phone call for me? Like I have, it's a total catch 22. Uh, for I make my kids do that stuff too. But then they're like, oh man, she's working her agenda again. <laughs> well, know? I read, I actually read out loud from your book to my daughter. Like, look, somebody else is saying to do this. Isn't that cool? And she was just, oh man. There's there's one of my my favorite testimonial on my speaking page on my website is uh, the very first one. I put it at the top because it comes from a little kid that um, his dad sent me a quote that said, you won't do anything for me since you went to that dumb speaker thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. But so the good results. Yeah. And I think that, you know, from the way that I was raised, I mean, I want my kids to be successful, right? I'm putting air quotes up. I want them to do the best that they can. I want them to strive to do their personal best and to show up well. And I know that there's going to, that life is messy, that we're emotional humans and we fall apart and get railroaded by our feelings in the moment and disappointment and all that stuff. So how, where does hoping for the best for your child get messy for you? Like, where does it, where do we go wrong? I mean, I, think, I know where we go wrong, but. Well, honestly, I think, I think uh, talking to parents who really, really are invested in their kids' lifelong happiness and not the moment-to-moment happiness. I mean, talking to parents whose kids have learning issues or kids for whom life is a little bit more of a struggle and successful to them means that their kid is living a life that is well-lived and that is, um, you know, where they have character and where they are happy in what they're doing. I think the problem is, is for parents that have kids where everything looks effortlessly easy and they do well, and I call them the raised by wolves kids, is that we tend to think of those kids as needing to fit into this incredibly narrow, these incredibly narrow parameters of what is success. And so for many people these days, their parameters for, you know, success are go to a really selective college and get a job as a doctor or a lawyer or some other, you know, high paid tech, whatever that sort of is seen as successful. And we forget that, you know, there are a lot of people who are very happy and successful plumbers and writers and all these different things that may not fit into this very narrow definition of success that, you know, I just got back from places like Palo Alto where you're in a community where everyone seems so successful that for you to consider doing anything other than be an extremely successful entrepreneur or finance person or lawyer or whatever is is sort of seen as as abnormal mm-hmm. and i think i think the problem with that is that we're imposing so much of our own agenda on our kids that you know we're we're handicapping them and where it doesn't allow us to see what's really special in our kids and what they really love This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So as the weather warms up, we're outside gardening or doing yard work, 
there are so many opportunities for skin issues, right? And for me, it's always a mystery to know what's going to irritate my skin, but I'm definitely out there itching and scratching. But the good news is active skin repair always seems to save the day. Active skin repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, making it suitable for use on all skin types, all parts of the body, and even on rosacea, eczema, and acne-prone skin. Here's what I want you to do. Visit ActiveSkinRepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and get 20% off your order when you use code JOYFUL. Again, that's www.ActiveSkinRepair.com. Find out more about the product and get 20% off your order when you use the code JOYFUL. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Thank God, spring into summer is my favorite time of year. After turning 50 last September, I've been really working on my physical health and well being and can honestly say that I am feeling better in my body than I have felt in a very long time. Yes, credit goes to movement and working out, but even more credit goes to how I'm feeding my body. That's why I love Factor. I fuel up with Factor's no prep, no mess meals, 35 different meal choices, and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. I always have a new flavor to explore. It's amazing. You can crush your wellness goals this May, keep time in the kitchen to a minimum, and enjoy effortless support for the lifestyle you want to be living with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust from Factor. Head over to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use the code joyful50 to get 50% off your first First box plus 20% off your next month. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50. Again, that's 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Yes, yes, yes. Join me. Join me in the health revolution and feel really good this summer. And, you know, no matter how much we want something for our kids, we can't make them want what we want for them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that sort of has to emerge on their own. Yeah, that's so, so annoying. Yeah. So yeah. annoying. That's the case. <laughs> I know, exactly. Well, and, well, I, and I, what I'm hearing too is like the, with this drive for success, as far as academics go, college, that piece, there is this whole missing realm of being, which are the social and life skills, which you talk a lot about in your book. Well, and creativity and play. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, without going too, you know, sort of touchy feely about it. There are kids I know, kids I have taught who really just don't have any ability to be frivolous and play and and do silly things. And that was weird to see that. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue is that um, we talk about success as being, you know, like a kid goes to Stanford. Well, you know, the wonderful corollary book to mine is Julie Lithcott Hames, How to Raise an Adult. And Julie Lithcott Hames was, um, sorry, she was an advisory dean for freshmen at Stanford. And what she was seeing was kids showing up at Stanford unable to 
cope with life, with basic life stuff. And those kids have achieved within our very narrow parameters of success. Like, you know, wow, Stanford, you're at Stanford, you must be the best of the best. And yet what she saw were kids who couldn't hack the emotional trials of day-to-day life at that place. So, you know, one of the things I talk to parents a lot about is reconciling the fact that there are a lot of ways to be happy and a lot Mm -hmm. of ways to be successful. And um, we have gotten, we've really lost our imagination around that uh, and lost our ability to see anything other than, you know, within those blinders that we've put ourselves, put on ourselves. Yeah. So you talk in the book um, about controlling parents versus autonomy supportive parents. I love that term, (laughs) autonomy supportive parents. Can you kind of speak a little bit into these two styles? I find myself in both categories. So well, I'd love to hear what you have it to was say. interesting. A lot of the criticism that I've gotten at the Julie Lithcott Hames, both of us have gotten for our books is that we're talking about that sort of the price of privilege, Madeline Levine's price of privilege audience, that this is a very narrow slice of upper class society, but it is absolutely not as um, like I said, Julie and I were just talking about this, that overparenting may look slightly different um, in different socioeconomic groups. But so, for example, you have sort of wealthier parents, parents who are used to having some power, are very good at the whole, you will not discipline my kid unless you talk to me first, you know, going in and pounding on the teacher's desk kind of entitlement. Whereas, you know, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum tend to do the micromanaging their kids at home kind of situation. So autonomy supportive parenting is parenting for your kid's ability to control some details of of their life, whether that's how they do their homework, where they do their homework. You know, I, I like to make the analogy that we don't tell toddlers, you know, would you like to wear a hat today? We say, would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat? Mm-hmm. And we give them we give them autonomy to own part of that decision. And what a lot of parents are not doing is giving their kids any control around school life or sports life. And if they do give them any control around it, then they also rescue them on the other end if kids forget stuff or are irresponsible on their end. So what we're seeing a lot um, from as a teacher, what I'm seeing a lot is parents controlling every aspect of the home life. And then if the kid gets any ability to sort of make mistakes, then the parent also swoops in on the other end and protects the kid from any consequences of their mistakes, which completely short circuit the teaching, short circuits the teaching uh, process. I mean, that especially middle, we were talking about middle school. That's what middle school is. It's giving kids new opportunities to mess things up that have to do with, you know, executive function and, you know, all that organization and planning and all that stuff. They screw up over and over and over again. And what middle school teachers hopefully do you know, or help them learn better ways to do it. And if the parent is constantly fixing things for them, we don't ever get that opportunity. Well, and I love the title of that chapter about middle school, which is Prime Time for Failure. (laughs) I love that chapter just because, like I said, because it's about middle, it's about those pupa people, those middle school kids. Yeah. Well, and my listeners know I've got one. I have a seventh grader and and it's so, even the difference between sixth and seventh grade has been huge. Yeah. Um, Wait till you, the, uh, is this a boy or a girl? It's a girl. Okay. Seven, I mean, for boys, especially the difference between seventh and eighth grade is just unbelievable. Um, for girls, you know, they tend to, they tend to um, grasp that whole executive function thing a little bit earlier than boys do in middle school. Yeah. Um, that's showing up in the boys yeah. that are giving her attention. <laughs> 
<laughs> just have to tell her things like, well, they just don't have the skills to let you know that they like you. So they're doing all these weird things. Um, yeah. You know, you know, in middle school, the cool thing about middle school is, you know, the job of the middle school teachers to get them ready for the increased rigor and, and increased responsibilities of high school. And there are plenty of kids where I look at them in, in sixth grade as their advisor and I say, oh my gosh, we're never going to get there. There's no possibility this mm-hmm. kid can go to high school. And yet, I don't know, something happens. All those connections start to happen in the frontal lobe and they learn how to control themselves and they learn self-regulation and they learn organization. And then all of a sudden I'm saying goodbye to them in eighth grade and and I go, oh yeah, okay, they're going to make it. They're going to yeah. be okay in high school. And okay. it just, it's a matter of time. And the, the neat thing about it is it's not a matter of smarts. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be the smartest kid in the school and still be terribly uh, disorganized and not able to plan things or not able to understand metaphor or whatever. And that has nothing to do with how smart you are. It has to do with the connections in your brain. So making sure kids know that about themselves, that's one of the fun things about middle school is explaining that to them and helping them understand that it's not about being smart. It's just about brain development and patience. And you know, what's so exciting is that it wasn't until middle school that my daughter's teachers started talking to her about the things that I talked to her about. Yeah meaning brain development and neuropathways and, you know, the practice of things. And she comes home and says, mom, my teacher was talking about the prefrontal cortex. And I'm like, yes, thank you. I actually just visited a school in Dallas, Texas called the Momentus Institute. And they do that from kindergarten. Well, from preschool, they really, they talk about in kid-friendly language, Mm -hmm. the way their brain works. And I saw these really cool posters where they had like, you know, kids talking with pictures of brains talking about, you know, I'd like to learn how to pay attention better in class. And that's a function of my frontal lobe. And, you know, it's pretty that's cool. Awesome. Well, and yeah. we, I teach um, positive discipline in the classroom mm-hmm. um, to teachers. And yeah. that's what we talk about. We talk yep. to them about helping kids understand their brain right. so that they know that when they've lost their you know, brain in the palm of the hand, Dan Siegel's right. work, when they've lost their right. prefrontal cortex and all they have is their emotions, yeah. they need to come up with some ways, not in the moment, but have some ways to help them right. come back to their fully functioning brain. Hey, all I just wanted to let you know that I'm cooking up some goodness over here for the fall. The Joyful Courage Academy is coming back. I'm going to offer the Academy in September for parents of tweens and young teens. I'm thinking the 11 to 13-ish age range. There's been a big demand from the community, so I'm going to make it happen. In October, it will again be all about the teens. This is such a powerful way to learn and grow on the journey. Rich with content, a supportive community, and a one-on-one call with me makes the four weeks super useful and empowering. Stay up to date so that you can grab your spot because space for these programs will be very limited. Be sure to sign up for my newsletter, www.joyfulcourage.com slash join. Joyfulcourage.com slash join. Sign up for the newsletter to stay up to date. Open the newsletter to stay up to date. And don't forget, there are a lot of powerful conversations happening over in the Live in Love with Joyful Courage Facebook group, as well as the Joyful Courage Parents of Teens group. Ask to join, answer the questions, you will be accepted. And don't forget to buy my book. You can get it through my website or simply search for Joyful Courage on Amazon. I know that you will love it. Now back to the show. 
So back to the autonomy, yeah. supportive parents. Um, I love the story that you tell in the book about being at the park and watching mm -hmm. that poor dad <laughs> exhaust himself because every time his daughter had a problem in the sandbox or yeah. a voice was raised or whatever, he was yeah. up on his feet, ready to save the day. Mm -hmm. And then the other kid was like climbing on something and he was just busy, you mm -hmm. know, so it starts at the very beginning, right? I mean, it starts yeah. really young. Yeah. And what's, what I love about that particular scenario, and, and I talk a lot about that sort of kids in the sandbox throwing sand at each other. Mm -hmm. That's where the beginning of sort of negotiation and standing up for yourself and developing your voice to say, I don't like that. Don't do that. You know, that kid who learns how to do that stuff early on and stand up for herself and say, I don't like the way you're treating me is the kid who, you know, has the wear, emotional wherewithal to stand up to bullies later on. And when we swoop in there and we grab that kid and we lift him out of the sandbox and we take them away, we deny them that ability to, or the moment they need in order to like resolve that stuff between themselves. And we feel like what we're doing is being good parents and, and uh, being attentive parents. Um, but what we're really doing is short circuiting the learning process. And that, socialization. I mean, we yeah. let puppies do it. We take puppies to puppy socialization time and let them nibble on each other. And yet we don't let our children do the same thing. Yeah. Well, and then it shows up later on. You write later on on the playground when the one kid's being a punk yeah. and yeah. the grownups, you know, the whole bully culture yeah. terminology. Well, if you don't, I mean, there's that fantastic... Um, Oh, crap. The the comic who talks about why kids shouldn't have cell phones. Um, Louis C.K. He talks about the fact that, you know, it's so easy to be mean online because you don't have to look at the face of the person you've just hurt. Mm -hmm. And leaving the kids in the sandbox long enough to hear, that made me mad. That hurt my feelings. Um, that's an incredibly important part of learning how to, learning empathy and perspective taking. And a kid who doesn't learn that ends up never understanding how their behavior impacts other children and they end up being a bully. And that when that happens, we blame that kid for being mean. And yet we're the, we as parents are the ones who have not given him the opportunity to learn how to not be that way. Learn that, yeah. you know, that things we do hurt other people's feelings or make other people happy or, you know, whatever that that social interaction is. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, that's, we're creating that situation. Why do you think that these loving, I'm sure loving, well-intentioned parents, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. How do we get into the habit of, of taking over or controlling our children's lives? Why do we do um, it? I, well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that we're thinking really short term. Mm. We're thinking about in this moment right now, what will make me feel like a good parent? And inevitably that's you know, make, give my, you know, it, it's sort of that hand a kid a cookie moment and they look at you like, oh, thanks. Or, you know, deliver the homework to school when it's been forgotten. You, you know, you feel really good in that moment and you get a chance to check off that box of, oh yeah, I was a good parent today. But if you think about sort of what helps kids over the long term, what'll make us be good parents over the long term, what'll help us raise adults um, as opposed to raising a dependent child, um, that stuff is a little bit harder because we may have to put off that feeling of, oh yeah, I was good and loving and had my kids back um, just a little bit longer. But, you know, I think thinking more long-term and thinking more about process than the end product is really going to go a long way to helping us be better parents and not rely on those moment-to-moment -moment 
topical, really superficial feelings of, yay, I'm a good parent. I made my feel, yeah. kid feel good. I made them smile. I made them feel loved. I gave them a cookie. I, you know, whatever. They behaved in this moment because I gave them a lollipop, that kind of thing. We got to stop thinking so short term. Yeah. Well, what about the tendency? Because I know I work with some parents and um, again, loving, well-intentioned, but it's mm-hmm. that fear that creeps in. Like, if I don't nip this in the bud right now, they're going to end up in prison. Like, it seems like it always goes there, right? It's always like this, the worst case doomsday future for my child if I don't get this handled right now. And sometimes getting it handled means getting in the way. Yeah, taking over and intervening. I mean, if we go back to the sandbox, you know, we're afraid that the other parent is going to see us as not hands-on enough or, or not a good parent if we don't you know, take our kid out of the situation so they can't hurt the other kid. Or, you know, Mm. that sort of the day where, you know, the moment where kids pinch each other or throw sand at each other or or push each other down, we're not allowing those moments to play out. And I I think a lot of that just comes back to that. We're so worried about being perceived as something other than perfect as a parent. And I think if we're so worried about everyone else's perception, then, you know, maybe we need to think about what our motivation is. So I want to jump off, not off topic, but I was reading, um, I had a long car ride with my husband yesterday and I was reading to him from the friends chapter of your book about how, you know, as our kids get into middle and high school, they could get curious about all different types of of people, all different types Mm -hmm. of kids and not to panic when the new friend is, you know, dressed in all black with, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of that image of gloom and doom or whatever, Right. You know, and and I loved what you wrote about how it's a great way for our kids to be curious Yeah, about, yeah. you know, we're attracted to people and then be, forming a friendship is really can be about figuring out what that attraction is, mm-hmm. right? Why, what is it about you that I find so interesting and either plays out, you know, into a deeper mm-hmm. friendship or not? Right. I mean, I, if I think back to, you know, high school or middle school for me, you know, there were plenty of people I was attracted to socially because they were so different from mm-hmm. myself. And I wondered, and that plays out today. I mean, my taste in reading tends to be reading about people who are having, who have life experiences that are completely different than mine. You know, I've reading about what it takes to be, you know, a, a principal dancer for the, for the ABT or reading about someone who walks the Appalachian Trail or reading about someone mm-hmm. who's an ultra runner. I love reading that stuff because that's not what I do. Yeah. And that's, that's attractive to me. I want to know that stuff. So it's very similar for our kids. You know, we want to try things on and see if it fits. Um, I, you know, I was thinking just the other day, there was a kid that um, was my older son's friend and he scared me to death because he was constantly in the ER because he was such a risk taker. Mm. I loved this kid, but I didn't want that risk taking stuff to rub off on my kid. And, you know, when they were eight, I was looking ahead to when they were 16 and my kid getting in the car with him. Well, number one, I wasn't giving this kid enough credit for the fact that he was eight and hadn't grown up yet. But also it was really great for my kid. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) 
Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. To see this other kid go into the ER every time he careened down a hill on his on his you know uh, the you know this homemade luge track that he made through <laughs> the woods around trees in the back of his house, and you know it was sort of like a way for my kid to try on that risk taking personality and see the ramifications of it, meaning the casts and the band and mm-hmm. the you know the bandaged ear and the you know hair caught on fire um, without having to, you know, suffer those things himself. Exactly. And, you know, I think that we get so nervous about, you know, when our kids are really, really little, we get to pick their friends because it's proximity, right? Mm -hmm. You know, get to pick who, what moms do we want to hang out with? Right, exactly. And, and because the kids are there, that's who they're friends with. But all of a sudden our kids, you know, develop their own tastes. And it's like, oh my gosh, now I have to be friends with these moms that I didn't want to be friends with, or these parents I didn't want to be friends with, or my kids are friends with kids that I'd prefer they not be friends with. And that makes us super nervous. But I think attempting to view that as what it is, is the trying on of different identities and, yeah. and uh, adopting what they want for themselves and what they don't want for themselves. I think that's a, re- it's an incredibly powerful time for them. Um, and you know, I look back on some of the people that I thought were people I liked and then they, you know, that, that didn't work out. And that was stuff I, you know, those, their traits were things I didn't want in myself. And Mm -hmm. and that was a good learning experience for me. Yeah. And by the way, that eight-year-old kid that I was so nervous about totally chilled out and became a much more reasonable human being and hasn't been in the ER in like... (laughs) six years and, and he's perfectly healthy and fine. So, you know, <laughs> it helps me not to, cause I was my mom like, be careful, be careful. You know, anything yeah. we did, she would say like, my, my brother wanted to bungee jump and she said, well, she always had this story that went like this. Well, you heard about the guy <laughs> that did it and it, the, right. it broke and he died right. and right. he was the instructor. Like if the instructor's going to die, then clearly you shouldn't do it. So I have to work against that tendency to always want to be like, ah, be careful. 
And I'm so, married to someone. I'm married to physician to a physician who's been through an emergency room rotation. So he knows the worst case scenario for everything. And yeah. he worked in a shock trauma unit when he was a resident. So <sighs> at near a ski resort. So he's oh, seen, geez. you know, what happens to in the worst case scenario yeah. for everything. So, you know, that's that's something we've had to work against in our household too. Well, and what helps me is to remember, not for my daughter, but my son is definitely the risk taker. What helps me is to remember that he doesn't want to break his arm. <laughs> like there's, there is something working inside of him that is like doing the, the risk, cost risk analysis or whatever that, right. you know, that right. he's pushing himself enough, but doesn't necessarily want to break a leg. So that helps right. me to remember, and I don't need to continuously tell him. Well, to be the careful. other thing that's, there's something in the book also about this mom who realized that every time her kid left the house, she was saying, be careful. And yes, I love that. As if, as if it was putting some like extra force field about him. <laughs> yeah. um, but as we all know, saying be careful is for our benefit. It doesn't actually do anything. The kid is not going to be more careful because we told, and let alone like an hour later once they've left the house. And she realized what her husband would say when her kid left the house was have a good time. Mm-hmm. And she realized what she was communicating to her child was a general fear of anything out there that that she didn't, and also that she didn't trust him to be careful. And there's actually a great line, we say this all the time in our house, that was on Friends, where Monica was constantly saying to Chandler when he was handling their wedding china, be careful, be careful, be careful. And he finally stopped her and he said, let's just assume that I'm always going to be careful. Because, you know, it it becomes this, you know, it, it becomes nagging and it becomes this thing that also becomes the peanuts like wah, 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 oh, yeah. wah, wah thing because, <laughs> you know, if we're saying it constantly, it has no meaning whatsoever anyway. Right. And I love that because if we're not assuming that they're being, the message is, I'm assuming that you're not. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Whether it's spoken well, into or not. And this is the big thing. We have a brook behind our house and um, it's it's a dangerous spot if you don't know how to walk on, if you don't know what slick rocks look like. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things we do, if, if my f- kids have a friend over is we say, if we show them, okay, see right there, the rock is dark, that's slippery. And see right there, the rock is light, that's dry. Okay, go have fun. Mm-hmm. So now we've taught them, you know, this is how to be careful, not just if I yell at them, be careful as they're walking out the door, that that has no actual learning benefit to it. It's just it's just the wah, 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 wah thing. So. Right. It's like when we tell toddlers to use their words, <laughs> right? That kills me yeah. because it's like, yeah. well, you know, first you got to spend some time on the words. What yeah. are the words? How do we navigate this? And, right. and so on that note, it is so hard to see our kids navigate painful emotions and hard situations, whether it's a bad grade or not making a team mm-hmm. or friendship drama, or I know it's in my future, the whole romantic thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's so hard not to sweep in and want to just make them feel better, right? As and, if we and can. I, but there are so many stories I reveal in the book and I have permission for all those. And there's so many I'm not allowed to reveal, especially yeah. when it comes to romance. But just know, although I'm not allowed to tell the stories, man, I wanted to swoop in and just yeah. make it better. And, you know, it, it, but think about your own life. Think about the heartache you had to go through in order. I mean, you know, you have to go through bad relationships in order to find out, you know, what you want in a partner, in a life partner. Yeah, and totally. Can't save them from that. Yeah. Well, and and we know, and I know that with my head and I know yeah, that I know, a lot of parents, we know it with our head. But as far as that, you know, it's like a 
it's like a freight train that hits us in the moment and we see our child in pain for whatever reason. We have to, as parents, as the adults, navigating that flood of emotion and desire to swoop in. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have any tips for parents around that piece, around that that gap between, you know, what we're seeing and what we do? I think recognizing it for what it is. I mean, the the Wendy Grolnick research that's in the book, I, I really respect what she's done. And, and there are two things, two really big things I learned from her. Um, number one, that sort of anxiety um, that we feel about everything being so dire all the time is so contagious. And if you think about you know, I wrote about it for The Atlantic. I wrote this article called um, Why Back to School Night Made Me Feel Like a Bad Mom because I went to back to school night and although I knew my kids were at home doing the stuff they love to do, um, I think my older son was practicing the song Layla for like the 3,000th time on the guitar and my younger kid was probably paying, playing Minecraft or something. And, you know, I felt perfectly good about that when I left the house and then I got to back to school night and everyone's talking about the tutoring and the traveling soccer league and all this stuff. And I, I honestly had to step out of the room because I started to hyperventilate a little bit, thinking about all the things I wasn't doing as a parent. And we, we stir each other up. So number one, having an understanding that that sort of anxiety is really contagious, number mm-hmm. one, and knowing that sometimes you just have to step away from it um, yeah. to get some sanity. But also understanding that, you know, our sort of biological imperative is to rescue our children. And our primitive brain, our amygdala, doesn't always know the difference between, you know, the girl who hurts our little boy's or girl's heart or Mm -hmm. the, you know, the kid flying down the soccer field to, you know, steal the ball away from our kid or tackle our kid in a football game or whatever. Our brain does not, our, our sort of reptilian brain does not know the difference between that and like real actual danger. And Mm -hmm. so we, you know, we tend to get into high, we go into high gear and we go into save my kid mode, um, even if it's something that they really need to endure on their own. So just having a basic understanding that that's okay and that's how it works and that's what's happening in our head. So you can take a deep breath and say, okay, not so much a saber-toothed tiger attacking my child, just a kid tackling him on the soccer field and and we can relax a little bit. Uh, I love how all of my guests come back to that place of awareness, being mindful, (laughs) recognizing when you're freaking out over something that is not actually the reality that's happening in front of you. Well, and a little more honesty with our kids too. I I think, you know, if we're being honest, one of the things that um, parents of teenagers come to me and say is, oh my gosh, is it too late? I've been over parenting, blah, blah, blah. And I say, you know, relative to little kids, older kids can actually hear you when you go to them and say, look, you know, I think I've I've messed this up and I I really want to come at this parenting thing from a different place now. And I'm going to start giving you some autonomy and, and explain about that and explain the research. And not only that, modeling for our kids when we screw up. I mean, that's an incredible, incredibly valuable education for our kids. And yet we keep it from them because we're so worried about appearing perfect in front of our children. So at the dinner table, we talk about, you know, all this other stuff, but not, man, you know, that guy really double crossed me at work today. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I really inadvertently insulted someone in an email and I had to make amends with her. Um, we don't want kids to see us as anything other than, you know, these perfect figureheads of parenting. And and so we don't share that stuff, but that's, oh my gosh, that stuff's so valuable. Oh yeah. I share it. 
I let them know. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> life is messy. Yeah, life is messy. Um, so your whole book, Jess, your whole book totally speaks my language. And there's chapters, like I mentioned, the chapter on friends. You've got chapters on sports, which by the way, it was really exciting to read the section about, yes, you can talk your, your five-year-old into basically into playing soccer and two weeks in, they might decide they don't like soccer. And (laughs) that's not necessarily the moment to teach follow through and commitment because you're the one that signed them up. Well, and not only that, if you're doing soccer and they hate it, then that's all that time they couldn't be trying something else. Because I mean, childhood in particular is supposed to be this time of trying out lots of different things. And my uh, younger son in particular hates, hates team sports. So why on earth am I going to force him into something he hates mm-hmm. out of some feeling like, oh, I'm supposed to do that, that that's like on, that's on the plan. That has to be a part of my child's development. Um, there are lots of other ways to learn so about many. working with people and stuff like that than, than, you know, the one route that we sent. You know, we think, okay, every kid has to learn music and every kid has to do a team sport and every kid has to, you know, I, I, I disagree. Yeah, I think there totally. are lots of ways to get there. I agree with you. And um, and I love that you have, you speak into, you know, supporting through homework and cultivating yeah. relationships with kids' teachers. And so there's a lot in your book, right? And it's so good. And I think everybody should buy it. And I'm going to have links to all the things that you've mentioned in the show notes, and including a link to your book. But if parents are listening to this and thinking like, ooh, yeah. I'd probably definitely fall into the more controlling end of the spectrum. What is a good place for a parent to start? What's a baby step for a parent to move towards, to move in the direction of being more autonomy supportive? I think the very first thing you have to do is in your own head, you have to switch from a short-term perspective to a long-term perspective. I mean, that's the very, very first place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, start with one thing at a time. Start, like if it's about, if if you've been incredibly controlling about school or you've been incredibly controlling around sports, just find ways to back off, find ways to give your kids a little bit of control. And I think if you, the thing, the book I wanted was a book that was very how-to, but rooted in the research. And I mm-hmm. think it, you know, constantly what I'm doing in all of those chapters about sports or homework or whatever is, is say, okay, now remember back when I talked about, you know, what it looks like to be an autonomy supportive parent and why that works so well for kids. Here's an example of where it would be great to back off and just let them have a little more control over the details. Um, you know, I, I love the research stuff, but what I really needed was here's how to back off around sports. Here's how to back off around mm-hmm. homework. Here's mm-hmm. how to back off around social life. Um, because I, I wasn't finding that anywhere. And, and when I, you know, realized I was doing it myself and I was kind of, <laughs> I was, I, I was, it was kind of inconvenient for me because I just wanted to be pissed off at my students' parents. And, uh, and that wasn't working for me anymore. <laughs> I couldn't just be mad at them because I was doing the same stuff. I, yeah. I really needed that how-to. Yeah. Well, before you go, first I want to yes, say ma'am. big, huge thank you. You're so, so welcome. Um, This was so fun. So great to talk to you. Um, But I want to know all the ways that people can find you and follow your work. Well, I'm just, like I said, I just got back from book tour. So um, I am 
busily working on all kinds of fun stuff on my website at jessicalahey.com. Not only is there a link to the book there and links to all my articles in the Times and the Atlantic and Vermont Public Radio and all that stuff. And what I do as a speaker, there's also going to be a bunch of bonus content on my site. I have stuff I'm working on um, when I go speak at schools and I talk to the kids. I really give the kids sort of a way to think about the same stuff I talk to parents about. So that there's going to be kind of a bonus chapter for kids. There's going to be some frequently asked questions. There's going to be all kinds of stuff there. So if you sign up there, I don't, I don't email people um, newsletters very often. um, And I'm very careful about what I send out because I take that when someone gives me their email address and, and offers, you know, a way into their inbox, I take that very seriously. So um, I send out stuff that I think is sort of, you know, important and relevant and that kind of thing. So com is sort of the best place to start. Okay. Do you, are you on social media? I am. I'm just at Jess Leahy on Twitter. And okay. I do a lot of tweeting about education and parenting. And I'm at, I have a professional page on Facebook, um, Jessica Leahy. And yeah, I'm on Instagram too, Teacher Leahy. You can find me all kinds of places. I'm putting all those links in the show notes. <laughs> all these people are going to be like, where is this lady? I'm going to find her. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for Our writing stuff. this book because I love it. I love I'm it. And so I think happy. it's, yeah, I mean, imagine the world that we would live in if the entire generation of people who are raising kids right now were leaning towards that autonomy supportive parenting style. I just think it would change our whole world. Yeah, when so. I, you know, when I really when I looked at the research on autonomy supportive uh parenting and and the difference between the kids who are autonomy supportive and not I kind of blew the top of my head off and yeah. you know, I I totally agree. I think it could be a much more interesting and innovative world. Yes. Well, thank yep. you. I'm really excited to uh, see what else comes out of your brain because this is good. Well, keep me posted on how your stuff's going. I will. Monroe Monitor. It's been a while <laughs> since I've been in there, but. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I am so honored to serve you each and every week. I love to hear what you think about the show. A great place to leave a review is iTunes. Your review will help others find the podcast and take in all the goodness. And you never know, I might read your review live on the show. And that is very exciting. (laughs) Big thank you to my team, Tay, Allison, and Chris Mann from Podshaper. So grateful for the ways you all support me in the work of Joyful Courage. Until next week, bring your attention to your breath, ride it into your body, find the balcony seat, and trust that everyone is going to be okay. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. 
I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 